Today on Legalese, it is time once again for my annual Supreme Court Roundup. Hey, greetings, everybody, and welcome back once again to Legalese. As always, I am your host, Bob, and I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you happen to be new to my channel, let me especially welcome you. Uh, This is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now, uh, if you want to find out more about the show, you should definitely head over to my newly revamped homepage over at uh, legalesepodcast.com. There you can find my uh, uh, past videos and episodes I do, articles I write. You can buy my book, do a lot of other cool stuff there. Uh, and if you dig what I do and you want to subscribe to my newsletter, which will allow you to uh, get notifications sent directly to you anytime I post new articles, videos, or podcast episodes, you can do that by going to legallyshow.com. All right, let's just get right to it here today, though, because we have a lot to get through. So as many of you no doubt know, uh, the start of the newest fall Supreme Court term will be commencing tomorrow, where they will be starting to hear oral arguments in their cases for the upcoming term. So today, I want to share with you the list of important and interesting cases that I will be staying on top of from now until the end of the session in late June or early July. This is when I will do uh, what I call my Supreme Court wrap-up, where I sort of put my final point on these cases that we follow uh, throughout the year. Now, for anyone who has not been watching my show long enough to have seen my previous roundups and wrap-ups, let me explain how this works, because I do it a little differently than many of my fellow, I don't know, legal bloggers or podcasters, I guess, uh, do Uh, When they do their own version of this, they tend to do it in one of two ways. Now, they will either attempt to cover every marriage case worth covering, or they will focus on a very particular topic that is sort of an area of their expertise. So uh, if they are into First Amendment law, they will talk about all the First Amendment cases, things like that. Now, there are many great writers, bloggers, podcasters, journalists, and so forth who are already doing great work uh, using these two models. So rather than just further oversaturate sort of, I don't know, the legal blogger web space, uh, what I do is a little different. And I go through the list of marriage cases and I pick the ones that I want to cover for uh, any number of honestly fairly personal reasons. This can be because it is a case that I find particularly interesting, or it is a topic that I tend to cover here a lot on the show. And then also, there's always those few cases that are it's just it's so obvious that even, you know, Ray Charles can see through Stevie Wonder's eyes that these cases are going to end up being major landmark decisions. And so this is how I choose the cases I cover, which I like a lot because it really frees me up to cover these cases in a really a comprehensive and holistic way that I don't really see a lot of other people doing. So just to be clear here, there are going to be a number 
of interesting and important cases happening this term that I won't be covering, at least not in depth like this. So I want you to know that it, this isn't because just because I'm not covering a particular case does not mean that I necessarily believe that case is less important than others I am covering. That's not really what this is about here. So uh, to start off with here, if in my past video where I was talking about the upcoming Chevron case, Loper Bright Enterprises v. Romando, which is the case we will be talking about a little later, but uh, I made a remark there that the upcoming term is going to be one dominated by landmark administrative law cases. Now, that uh, is still very much true, though I, I'm only be going to be covering two of those cases. However, I think a close runner-up for the most dominant area of law that is going to be uh, looked at this term has to be First Amendment cases. So, uh, in fact, five of the ten cases that I will be covering are going to be First Amendment cases, and that's not even the whole lot. I've, I've left a number of interesting and important First Amendment cases on the table uh, this session, just purely for brevity's sake. So, and even among the First Amendment cases, there is really sort of a dominant niche, and this is going to be cases related to the First Amendment and social media platforms. Now, this is actually going to represent basically four of the five First Amendment cases that I'm going to be covering are cases that fall into this particular area, First Amendment and social media platforms. And dealing with, uh, one, state laws regulating social media, and two, whether politicians blocking certain people from accessing their social media constitute a First Amendment violation. So I want to start here by talking about the two social media state law cases. These are Moody v. NetChoice and NetChoice v. Paxton. So starting with Moody v. NetChoice. Now, this case deals with a law enacted in Florida that attempts to prevent social media companies from abusing their enormous power to censor speech. Now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently signed a measure, SB 7072, that would bar social media platforms from deplatforming or deprioritizing any Florida political candidates. And among other things, this law provides the following points. First, that platforms cannot ban or deprioritize candidates or state office for more than 14 days. Second, platforms cannot ban or deprioritize any news outlet meeting certain size requirements. Third, platforms must be transparent about moderation process and give users notice of moderation actions. And fourth, users and the state will have the right to sue companies that violate this law with statutory fines that could be as high as $250,000 per day for some offenses. So in this case, the questions presented uh, were, one, whether the First Amendment prohibits a state from requiring that social media companies host third-party communications from regulating the time, place, and manner in which they do so. 
and two, whether the First Amendment prohibits a state from requiring social media companies to notify and provide an explanation to their users when they censor the user's speech. Now, the petition for cert uh, was granted on a limited review of questions one and two as presented by the Solicitor General in her brief for the United States as an amicus curiae, that is a friend of the court. And so the limited review that the court has agreed to hear uh, regarding these cases is, one, whether the law's content moderation restrictions comply with the First Amendment, and two, whether the law's individualized explanation requirements comply with the First Amendment. So the next case we are going to be talking about here is NetChoice v. Paxton. So the state of Texas, much like Florida before it, has enacted a viewpoint content and speaker-based law, this is House Bill 20 or HB 20, that targets certain disfavored social media websites. Now, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been emphatic about the fact that he will not stand for social media censorship, but in all fairness, he really couldn't stand against it either. Now, HB 20, Section 7, prohibits these websites from making editorial choices based on viewpoint. And HB 20, Section 2, imposes on these websites burdensome operational and disclosure requirements, chilling their editorial choices. Now, the Supreme Court has already ensured once that the respondent cannot enforce this law against petitioners' members, and this was in a 2022 case of NetChoice v. Paxton. This is now a different case, Paxton v. NetChoice. And here, the question presented before the court is whether the First Amendment prohibits viewpoint content or speaker-based laws restricting selected websites from engaging in editorial choices about whether and how to publish and disseminate speech or otherwise burdening those editorial choices through onerous operational and disclosure requirements. All right, the next two cases we are going to be talking about here are, are related cases, and these are O'Connor Ratcliffe v. Garnier and Linke v. Freed. Now, the Supreme Court will be deciding on two cases raising questions unique to our social media age. This is because many public office holders have social media accounts that are not formally run by the government, but which the office holder nonetheless uses to discuss public affairs. Now, in Port Huron, Michigan, the city manager used a Facebook account to discuss COVID-19 emergency measures and other city policies. Likewise, in Poway, California, two school board members used Facebook and Twitter accounts to discuss school district issues. When these office holders were criticized by constituents on their social media accounts, they blocked some of these users, which prevented the constituents from reading, commenting on these office holders' posts. 
Now, the office holders in both cases were sued by their constituents for these social media blockings, and both cases raise a novel question. While private citizens are free to ignore or engage with the speech of others as they please, the government has special obligations under the First Amendment. Government officials may not block access to government forums, say, a town meeting held at a city hall, for example, on the basis of a citizen's viewpoint. So, when the office holders in these cases block other users from accessing social media accounts that discuss government affairs, were the office holders acting as private citizens or as agents of the government? So, in other words, really, were the blockings a state action subject to First Amendment limits? So the first case that we'll be uh, discussing this is O'Connor and Radcliffe v. Garnier. And this case we'll be looking at whether a public official engages in a state action is subject to the First Amendment by blocking an individual from the official's personal social media account when the official uses the account to feature their job and communicate about job-related matters with the public but does not do so pursuant to any governmental authority or duty. And when it comes to Linkey v. Freed, courts have increasingly been called on uh, to determine whether public officials who selectively block access to his or her social media account have engaged in so-called state action, particularly subject to constitutional scrutiny. To answer that question, most circuit courts consider a broad range of factors, including an account appearance and purpose. But in the decision below, the Court of Appeals rejected the relevance of any consideration other than whether the official was performing a duty of his office or invoking the authority of his office. And so in Linkey v. Freed, the question presented that the court has agreed to here is whether a public official social media activity can constitute state action only if the official used the account to perform a governmental duty or under the authority of his or her office. Now, the next case we are going to be looking at here is Vidal v. Elster. This is the small hands Trump case. And while I, I generally really do try to steer clear here of any topic related to Donald Trump, this case is just far too hilarious uh, and is one that has too many serious First Amendment implications for me to do so this time. So in this case, uh, the question presented before the court is, Section 1052C of Title 15 provides in pertinent part that a trademark shall be refused registration if it consists of or comprises a name identifying a particular living individual except by his written consent. And so 15 U.S.C. 1052C, uh, with this in mind, the question presented is as follows whether the refusal to register a mark under Section 1052C is a violation of the Free Speech Clause of the First Amendment 
when the mark contains criticism of a government official or public figure. Now, the next case we will be taking on here is uh, De Valere v. Texas, and this is going to be a takings clause case. Now, in the case of First English Evangelical Lutheran Church v. County of Los Angeles, uh, the court would recognize that the Fifth Amendment's taking clause was self-executing and that statutory recognition was not necessary for claims for just compensation because they are grounded in the Constitution itself. Now, since First English, several state courts of last resort have held that the self-executing nature of the takings clause requires them to entertain claims directly under the clause without the need for statutory authorization. And two federal circuits, the Fifth and the Ninth, disagree and have held that claims for just compensation are only available if they are uh, legislatively authorized. So the question presented in this case is based on that circuit court split, and it is, may a person whose property is taken without compensation seek redress under the self-executing takings clause, even if the legislature has not affirmatively provided them with a cause of action? Now, as you guys may recall, um, I made a couple of videos recently about uh, the Chevron deference case that is going to be an upcoming case called Loper Bright Enterprises v. Raimondo. And I made these videos because this case uh, has major implications for Chevron deference, which has been covered by both the left and the right. And the fact is they are both losing their fucking minds over this case because they believe that this case will absolutely be the death nail of Chevron deference. While the conservatives are celebrating a victory not yet won, the Democrats are already denouncing a case that has not been tried. Now, in my past videos that I made on this topic, my point had been and will continue to be that all of these sensationalized claims made by people seeing what they want to see uh, are just bullshit. Now, yes, it is within the realm of possibility that this case could completely gut Chevron deference, and I hope it does, but it won't. So, real quick, let's look at the background of this case for those who maybe haven't seen my past videos and are wholly unfamiliar with uh, what is going on here. So, these all revolve around the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which governs fishery management in federal waters and provides that the National Marine Fisheries Service, NMFS, may require vessels to carry federal observers on board to enforce the agency's myriad regulations. Now, given that space on board a fishing vessel is limited and valuable, that alone is an extraordinary imposition, but in three narrow circumstances, not applicable here. But the MSA goes further and requires vessels to pay the salaries of the federal observers who oversee their operations, although, with the exception of foreign vessels that enjoy the privilege of fishing in our waters, the MSA caps the cost of those salaries 
at 2 to 3% of the value of the vessel's hull. So the statutory question underlying the petition in the case is whether an agency can also force a wide variety of domestic vessels to foot the bill for their salaries of monitors that they must carry to the tune of 20% of their revenue. Now, under well-established principles of statutory construction, the answer to this would obviously appear to be no, as the express grant of such a controversial power in limited circumstances forecloses a broad implied grant that would render the express grant superfluous. However, a divided panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals answered yes under Chevron on this very theory. And the statutory silence here has produced an ambiguity that has now justified deferring to the agency. And so with all that in mind, the questions presented in the upcoming Loper-Bright case are as follows. 1. Whether, under a proper application of Chevron, the Magnuson-Stevens Act implicitly grants the NN. NMFS, so that's the National Marine Fisheries Services, the power to force domestic vessels to pay the salaries of the monitors that they must carry. And two, whether the court should overrule Chevron or at least clarify that statutory silence concerning controversial powers expressly but narrowly granted elsewhere in the statute does not constitute an ambiguity requiring deference to the agency. Now, um, if you haven't seen them before, I would strongly encourage you all to go watch the videos I've already made on this case. Um, and in fact, even actually, if you have seen them, I would recommend going back and watching them again. They were There were two videos about this. I think they were some of my, my better videos, if I'm being completely honest and objective here. And I always have one talking about myself. And so there are a couple reasons that I am urging this. Now, one is because administrative law, which is what this case covers, is really an especially cumbersome uh, topic to try and detangle, uh, which also has a very high learning curve, it really much more than most other topics of law that I cover here, such as constitutional law. Uh, administrative law really has a much higher learning curve. Um, the fact is, it's also a very, very dry topic, even by legalese standards. Uh, and of course, by legalese, I am referring to the argot of lawyers and not the name of this particular show. Now, the fact is, administrative law it can be drier than the fucking Sahara, but uh, I, I like to think that just like with constitutional law, I do a pretty damn good job of breaking down these topics in a way that is interesting to watch and easily accessible to lawyers and non-lawyers alike. And also, the second reason for going back and watching these would be that most people who uh, are aware, uh, it, it, or, excuse me, the more people who are aware that uh, six months ago, I already made a prediction about the outcome of this case that is going to go entirely against the general belief by political commentators on both the rest, the left and the right, who are both saying that this case will absolutely positively overturn Chevron. And uh, 
I think the most people who are aware that I predicted they are completely wrong, uh, the more impressive it will be in six months from now when I'm proven right. Uh, yes, I really am that vain. Anyways, now, let's keep moving on here. So the next case we're going to be talking about here is the Securities and Exchange Commission v. Chereski. Now, in uh, Jureski v. Securities and Exchange Commission, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit has held that the Securities and Exchange Commission adjudication of fraud cases in administrative proceedings is unconstitutional. And as far as uh, the background on this case, on May 18th of 2022, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, in this case, Chereski v. Uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, would hold that the Security and Exchange Commission's administrative proceedings uh, adjudicating securities is unconstitutional. Now, on March 22nd of 2013, the SEC would bring an enforcement action against hedge fund operator George G. Dreski Jr. and Patriot 28 LLC alleging that they engaged in securities fraud under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, as well as the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. Now, the Jarski file is an interlocutory challenge in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia Circuit seeking to enjoin the SEC administrative proceedings based on constitutional defects. The District Court in this case held that the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit uh, has later affirmed, excuse me, um, that the SEC administrative proceedings lacked jurisdiction over the case and that Jureski had to exhaust administrative remedies before raising a constitutional claim before a federal court of appeals. Now, in this case, an SEC administrative law judge uh, in the SEC administrative proceeding, issued an initial decision concluding that Jureski had committed securities fraud and Jureski appealed to the SEC. Now, surprise, surprise, the SEC then confirmed its own findings and imposed a civil penalty of disgorgement and a cease and desist order against Jureski for further uh, litigation. Now, with this, Jureski then appealed the SEC's order to the Fifth Circuit, which would go on to vacate the SEC's decision because it found a number of constitutional defects, and this includes the SEC's enforcement actions before the uh, AIJ, that is the or ALJ, the Administrative Law Judge, that the SEC's enforcement actions before an Administrative Law Judge deprived Jureski of his right to a jury trial under the Seventh Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which contains a right to a jury trial for common law actions, which includes suits brought under the federal securities law if the suit includes a common law-like claim such as fraud or seeks a common law remedy such as a civil penalty. Another issue was that the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010 
violated Article 1 of the Constitution when it delegated legislative power to the SEC because Congress failed to provide the SEC with an intelligible principle to guide its use of such power. And the third constitutional issue that they found was obstacles to remove the ALJ violate Article 2 of the Constitution, which provides that the president should, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed, end quote. And until the court issues its opinion in this case, the SEC will probably file most litigated actions in federal district courts, uh, really unlike the administrative proceedings in which the defendant has access to full discovery and the rules of evidence apply, which is why this is so crucial. So really, overall, the Fifth Circuit uh, and their opinion presents a novel interpretation of a Supreme Court precedent that was previously considered well settled. Now, this case is significant as it breaks new ground. However, the opinion's uh, applicability to other agencies is unknown at this point. Uh, just to kind of get you caught up here. Now, as to what particularly this case is going to be looking at, uh, there are several questions presented that the court has agreed to hear. The first is whether statutory provisions that empower the Securities and Exchange Commission to initiate and adjudicate administrative enforcement proceedings seeking civil penalties is a violation of the Seventh Amendment. Second, whether a statutory provision that authorizes the SEC to choose to enforce the securities laws through the agency adjudication instead of filing a district court action violates the non-delegation doctrine. And third, whether Congress violated Article 2 by granting a four-cause removal protection to administrative law judges and agencies who had enjoy a four-cause removal protection. So, the court further here is going to be hearing uh, what I'm quite sure is going to be a landmark case about the 16th Amendment which is, of course, the amendment that made armed robbery both legal and constitutional. So the case here we are going to be talking about is Moore v. United States. Now, the 16th Amendment authorizes Congress to lay taxes on income without apportionment among the several states. Now, beginning with the Eisner v. McComber case in 1920, this court's decisions have uniformly held that income for 16th Amendment purposes to require the realization by the taxpayer. Now, in the decision below that we'll be talking about, however, the Ninth Circuit approved taxation of a married couple on earnings that they undisputedly did not realized were instead retained and reinvested by a corporation in which they are minority shareholders. It held that, quote, realization of income is not a constitutional requirement, end quote, for Congress to lay an income tax exempt from apportionment. 
Now, in so holding, the Ninth Circuit became the first court in the country to state that an income tax doesn't require that a taxpayer has realized income. So, with that in mind, the question presented in this case will be whether the 16th Amendment authorizes Congress to tax unrealized sums without apportionment among the states. And personally, I think this case may drastically alter the constitutional doctrine uh, really here about the income tax uh, that most people agree with, but which should really never have existed in the first place. Uh, And this is really very much sort of like the argument that conservatives are making about Chevron deference and the Loper-Bright case, and that this is uh, simply a a bad (laughs) constitutional thing that never should have existed in the first place. And they think that Loper-Bright is going to be the real uh, big overturning major case. I don't think it is. I think it's going to be this case. I think we're going to be very surprised here at uh, how the Supreme Court in this case changes the landscape of the 16th Amendment. And we will be getting into more of that uh, further on down the line as we start uh, covering oral arguments in this case and things like that. Now, finally, we have one more case, and I have truly saved the best for last, without a doubt. Now, the court is going to be hearing a huge Second Amendment case that I believe can and very possibly will be the kind of major victory for gun rights that Bruin was back in the 2021-2022 session. Of course, here I must be talking about the case of United States v. Rahimi. Now, this case looks at whether 18 U.S.C. 922-G8 which prohibits the possession of firearms by persons subject to domestic violence restraining orders, violates the Second Amendment prima facie. Now, this case is going to touch on a number of past uh, videos that I have done, uh, both about the Second Amendment and about issues of criminal justice reform. And I am going to recommend you guys go back and watch some of those to kind of get Uh, familiar with this topic again, and the one that I would certainly start with would be my video, All Gun Control is Racist. Now, I will put a few other relevant videos of mine on the show notes page for this case, but um, yeah, this case is going to be a very, very important one, and the fact is there's going to be all kinds of people and organization making all manner of insane claims regarding this case, both intentionally misrepresenting and unintentionally misunderstanding this case every single step of the way. And this will be especially true if the outcome goes the way I expect it will. We will have every gun grabber going apeshit trying to convince people that this case represents some cruel, evil choice by the Supreme Court to callously disregard the well-being of domestic abuse victims while protecting the pieces of shit that abuse them, which will, of course, be a completely fucking false narrative being fed to people by the uh, cathedral, if you will. And 
many people will understandably conform their opinion to this narrative that they hear over and over again. And I believe it will really be incumbent upon us to understand this case and provide a rational and accurate understanding of its actual context, outcome, and consequences. And this is something that I am going to be devoting a great deal of time to doing right here on this channel. So if you are someone like me who is very passionate about protecting uh, the Second Amendment, especially, uh, make sure that you go and uh, subscribe to my channel. You can go to, of course, LegallyShow.com to subscribe to my newsletter, or you can always just subscribe to my YouTube channel here locally if you wish. Uh, but that way you make sure that you get all of the latest episode. Or, um, you know, better yet, uh, you can head over to uh, my website, LegallyPodcast.com, and there you can sign up for uh, the newsletter. You can watch videos. You can read articles. You can do all kinds of great stuff over there. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, that's really uh, all I have for you guys here today. So uh, at this point, uh, you know, I, these are the cases I'm going to be focusing on, and I would love to get your thoughts about them uh, down in the comment section of this video. Uh, which of these cases do you think are going to be the most important and why? I would love to hear your thoughts and answers down in the comment section. And also, is there an upcoming case that you would really like to see me cover that I have not included on this list? Now, if so, you may be able to get your wish. Now, for most viewers, if you let me know if there is a case you would especially like to see me cover and let me know which case that is, I always seriously consider uh, taking those things into consideration, though I make no promises I will definitely cover it. Uh, however, there is one exception to that and because you can go uh, and sign up to become a monthly subscriber to my channel, uh, either on Spotify, Substack, or now uh, you can do this over directly on my webpage, LegallyPodcast.com. Signing up at any one of those three places gets you exclusive access to all kinds of extra goodies. And one of those is a guaranteed topic request, which means that any subscri subscriber can request I cover any topic whatsoever, and you will get a whole episode of the show dedicated to that particular request. But just to be clear, even if you're not in a position to become a supporter of the channel like now, uh, like that, that's all right. I understand. And regardless of that, uh, if you do have a request, I do seriously consider every request people make. And more often than not, I will grant them. Uh, and uh, one more thing is real quick here before we go. I want to thank all of you who took the time to respond to my last request during my last video, uh, asking you for uh, some suggestions about updates and new features for my webpage. Uh, I got a few people who sent me some really uh, great emails who shared some of their thoughts with me and made some suggestions. There were some really good suggestions in there. So I want to thank you guys uh, who did that. I've already begun implementing a few of the changes people suggested. I will be implementing more of them to come, so be looking out for that. And so, uh, yeah, anyways, I guess that is all for now. Uh, until next time, this has been Bob for Legalese, talking about the new Supreme Court term. And of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda S.